Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. see everybody here today. We've been going through this series called Jesus in the Old Testament, and we find ourselves in the book of Esther. If you want to follow along, uh, page 412, we're going to be jumping as well to 1 Samuel, also Philippians 2. So for those of you who, who do like to follow along in the text, you might want to prep up you know, for that. So I've been um, reading the whole story of Esther again this past week, and so I'm going to try to summarize it very quickly because we're only going to be in chapter 4 um, for today. So to remind you of the story, Esther is a beautiful Jewish girl. She's growing up with thousands of other Jews in the land of Persia, where they have been taken into captivity when the Persians seized Jerusalem. So her parents are dead. We know that. So her older cousin, his name is Mordecai, has adopted Esther and raised her as his own. Now, there's a man named King Xerxes, I'm going to call him the king in this story, King Xerxes. He's reigning around 4th century BC, and this is where the story of Esther is found. And so what happens in this story, this powerful King Xerxes is confronted by his own wife uh, in a drunken stupor, a party. He wants to show off his riches, and one of his greatest possessions is his beautiful wife. So he calls for her. And she refuses to go. Not a great idea if you don't want to die in prison. But she finds a strength within herself and says, I'm not going. And so King Xerxes then decides to banish her to a harem. So this is the kind of king he is. He has a whole harem of women. He banishes the queen from the queen's chambers into the harem chambers now. And so he begins a national search for a new queen. It's a beauty pageant, basically. So to find his next trophy wife. So Esther is entered into the contest by her uncle Mordecai. And he tells her, he warns her, keep your Jewish blood a secret. He thinks this is very important in order for her to have a chance to win. So that's a little hint that perhaps the Jews within Persia in the reigning empire were not uh, as welcome maybe as they would like to have been. Okay, So there's a little sign of maybe some ethnic strife between the Jews, the oppressed ones, and their oppressors. And what happens, she keeps her Jewishness a secret. Uh, It increases her chances to win the crown. And in fact, because of her beauty and her planning with Mordecai, it works. She wins the beauty pageant. And the king chooses her to be the new queen. So we're going to pause for a second, kind of fast forward to modern day. So this is like she has just won Miss Persia. Okay, beauty contest. It's also like she is the first Persian lady. It's kind of like she won Persian Idol. Remember that show, American Idol, right? And it's like she's living in the Playboy Mansion. Okay, so this is kind of what this story is like. And some people say the Bible is boring. My goodness, this is a first-rate TV drama going on right here, okay? The most beautiful woman in the land has been chosen to be the next queen and a king who has a whole harem of other women, but she's the queen. Now, so Esther's ascension to the queen means she is as powerful, as rich, as admired as a woman that could be for that time in that culture. She kind of has everything, okay? So what happens, though, even though she's ascended to this level, she still keeps her Jewishness a secret. 
Somewhere in the happenings of, of the nation, her uncle Mordecai develops a very bad relationship with a man named Haman. Haman is promoted to the second in charge of Persia, and because Mordecai had disrespected Haman at some previous thing, Haman crafts a plan to not just hurt Mordecai, but to eradicate the entire Jewish race because of the disrespect that Mordecai had shown Haman at a previous encounter. He is trying to destroy all the Jews in the land um, because he felt disrespected by Mordecai. Now, I want you to keep in mind a cultural context here. It, there may have been within the land that the king was ruling over, there may have been already some ethnic strife between Jews and the greater cultural minority. There are other cultures there as well. In fact, Haman himself isn't even Persian from another tribe. But maybe the Jews were the, the ones being blamed for all the problems, for stealing our jobs, right? For making our, our nation worse. So the Jews maybe are being blamed in this time. And so uh, Haman takes advantage of this ethnic strife and convinces the king, who doesn't know his own queen is a Jew, doesn't know that Mordecai, who he likes, is a, is a Jew. And what he does, he approves Haman's evil plan to eradicate all the Jews. So, the evil plan is in motion. Mordecai sends an urgent message to Esther. And he says this in verse 14, if you're following along. He says to Esther in this message, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish and who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, Esther is initially reluctant to respond to Mordecai's plan uh, until she realizes, as Mordecai says, you realize you can't escape this, Esther. You're going to have to act. And so when she realizes that, she says, I will speak to the king. She says this in verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days or, or day or night. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, and though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The law was, unless the king calls you, even his own queen that he supposedly loves, right? Even his own queen, she cannot approach him unless he calls for her. So she knows she is facing her own death. So Mordecai basically says, you're facing death anyway, Esther. You might as well do something. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you've ever noticed that in the story. Mordecai, is call he's shaming her, saying, look, you're going to get caught either way. You might as well try to do something, okay? So Esther, who's initially reluctant until she realizes that she too will not escape the decree, says she will speak to the king. And so facing death herself, she's now ready to take action. So I want to offer a few reflections on our text today as we spend a few moments together. First of all, you may have known this already, in the book of Esther, God is never mentioned specifically. Never. Entire book. You can look through chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way to the end. You don't see the name God mentioned. But at every point of the story, from beginning to end, when it looks like all hope is lost, you'll see Mordecai or Esther. They're always looking for some kind of help outside of themselves. So God is not named, 
but he's implied, okay, in the story of Esther. And take a look at verse 16 here specifically. Esther says to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Well, why do Jews fast? To pray. And when they pray, who do they pray to? Not the king, not to themselves. They pray to God. So God is never mentioned, but he's alluded to. It's implied throughout the entire book. At every turn, seemingly behind the scenes, God is acting to make something good come out of something bad. And so maybe God seems absent in your life. Maybe he's hard to see, he's hard to feel, he's hard to touch, he's he's hard to hear. Maybe you can't see him. But I want to tell you, because the Bible says he has not abandoned you. Jesus tells you, tells me today, I will never forsake you. For those that belong to him, he will never turn his back on you. It might feel like it. You can name the thing going on in your life. It feels like God is absent. And for Esther and Mordecai, maybe God seemed absent as well, but he has not abandoned you. And someone in this room needs needs to hear that today. He may seem silent, but he's there. He's wanting you to hear his still small voice. And I know sometimes it seems it's too quiet, it's too silent, but he's not abandoned you. He wants you to know that he's there. He wants you to trust him, even if you can't see him or, or, or touch him or feel him. He wants you to know, even though he seems hidden, he's real and he's there. And so for, for the Christian, for those who have said yes to Jesus, who've turned away from the other paths of life to only focus on Jesus as the true path of life, the promise is he will never turn his back on you. And some of you are saying, I need that. We want to offer that to you. We'll never turn his back on you. You can have a relationship with the author of life who will never turn away from you. Secondly, not only... Is God not mentioned specifically, but he's there? Secondly, aren't we all tempted to give into the world's values in some way? Think about it for a second. In ancient Persian culture, a man's identity would come from his wealth and his power. A woman's identity would come from her sexuality and beauty back then. Isn't it great that life today is nothing like that? 3,000 years later, it's the same story. You have to prove yourself. You have to be strong, beautiful, endearing, smart, athletic, everything. If you're not that, you're not important. You can be in Persia 3,000 years ago and live in America today, the same story. It's money, it's beauty, it's power, it's control. You name the thing that you think if you have will make you happy. It's the world telling us, same deal today. The culture tells us today that we need to win a beauty contest. We need to win. We need to be first, or we need to be known as the best, the most followers, right? That's what the world tells us we need for you to be important. Because the world says what you have is more important than who you are. And then there's a still small voice saying, I'm real. I'm here. Find your identity in me, not in this other stuff that fades. And sometimes it's a quiet voice, and it's hard to hear, and it's hard to see, and it's hard to feel him, but he's saying, I'm there. I have not abandoned you. I'm here. The culture tells us we need to match up, 
If you get this kind of money, resume, beauty, talent, power, if you don't get those things, you are worthless. You're negligible. You need these beauty treatments in order for you to be approved. That's what Esther knew. And that's what the world tempts us with. I'm turning 50 this summer, and I hate to break the news to you, but I'm losing my beauty. I know, it's hard to believe. Shocking, okay? There's more products that are being offered for someone who is approaching 50 for me to keep and retain my beauty. And I am tempted to buy every single one for hopes that this one might work. See, I don't want to lose it, so I I try this diet, I buy this product, or I work harder, or I try to get people to respect me, or people to laugh at jokes, whatever it takes to make me feel better, because if I don't hear the still small voice, that I have someone who already loves me, and I have nothing to prove. I'm going to keep trying to find things to make me feel valuable. It's a beauty contest, really, right? But we're all losing our beauty. We're all losing our power, our strength, our control. See, we don't want to lose these things. And Esther, she's thrust into a system that gives value only to things that are beautiful. And we're living in the same system. And we can learn from her, from her mistakes and from the ways that she fasted and prayed and turned to God. Because value is not based on our externals, but yet on God's intrinsic beauty and his image-bearing creation. And guess what? That includes you. And also it includes the people who aren't here and people who don't follow Christ yet. They are image-bearers of God, and they just don't know they're already beautiful in God's eyes. But they're following the wrong path. They're going after the wrong things. They're trying to make them feel beautiful, powerful, important, because we're all scared of being negligible forgettable. It's the worst thing in the world, right? It's not to be hated, it's to be forgotten. That's the thing we fear the most. The false sense of self, of values based on external. See, the world says to value the beautiful, the rich, the strong. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Don't we need a dose of humility in our world today? Blessed are those who understand they are nothing without Christ. Because once you discover you're nothing without Christ, you have everything. You're beautiful. You're eternal. You're you're connected to the God of the universe through Christ, through no one else, through Christ. You can have the beauty that you long for. We have a message to tell the world. We have what you're looking for, and his name is Jesus. You don't have to look anywhere else to try to avoid feeling negligible. Because that's what we all fear. It's not being hated, it's being forgotten. Esther must have been tempted to hold on to all of her riches, all of her beauty, all of her security she had. So I wonder if we're tempted also to hold on tightly to the wrong things. And our hands are not free to hold on to this good God who says, if you will trust me, if you will follow me, I will give you everything, everything you need because of him who's given us everything through the cross. In 1 Samuel 16, you have to turn there, but in verse 7, as God directs them to name a new king, 
they're going after and looking for all these different people who might be the king. In verse 1 in chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, who was the king, the bad king, since I have rejected him from being over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so Samuel goes to go after goes for the first son, the oldest, the good-looking son, the tall son. keeps going down the line. All the ones with the resume. And God says, no, not that one. How about this one? The strong one? No, not that one. Well, how about the handsome one here? No, not that one. Down the line through resume after resume after resume that should have been the next king. Then they get to David, the scrawny little kid, the youngest one. And God says, that's the one. And in verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at, uh, on his appearance or on the height of his stature, amen, <laughs> because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. The Lord is looking at you, and he sees your beauty, but he knows it's going to fade. And so he's looking inside to say, what do you want? Who are you? How do you identify yourself? I want to make you the most joyful, happiest, fulfilled person ever to walk this earth. But you have to say no to your life. Jesus says you have to lose your life to find it. And he wants you to find it by losing yourself in him. By turning away from the path of the beauty contest, right? The rat race, the resume competition, right? To say, oh, if you just do this or get this, then you'll be happy. He says, no, turn away from that. Just follow me. Know that you have eternal security and beauty in me. For the Lord does not look at the outward appearance as man does. He looks at the heart. He's looking at who you are. And he wants you to find yourself in him. Not on what you do or not what you look like or what you acquire. So let me ask you again, have you given into the world which tells you you must look like this or think like this or buy these things or acquire this kind of level of reputation before you can feel good about yourself, before you can really do something in this world? Because it's a false narrative. The true narrative is you're already loved. And as you attach yourself to King Jesus, he will help you to see yourself as he sees you, blessed, righteous, forgiven, given great gifts to use to make an impact in this world in big ways and small ways from this side of heaven. We have no idea how God will use our small acts to do something great. See, the world tells you that you deserve to be happy, but happiness cannot be attained by striving after it. How many people do we know who are striving after happiness? You can't get it by striving. It must be received in weakness as a gift. In Christ. See, Jesus says that once you lose your life, then you'll find it. Once you decide to turn your back on the world's values, which are valuing yourself and others on superficiality. See, once you turn back on that, turn away, and you turn to Jesus, then you can live in the realm of God's kingdom. See, because man looks at the outward appearance, but God is looking right inside of you. What makes you tick? What do you want? What are your fears? Do you see your weakness? But it's no good to see your weakness if you can't see God's love. If you just see your weakness, then you're just depressed. God wants you to see your weakness, but to see God's greatness. If you only see your weakness, then you're just 
bummed out and you hate yourself. That is not what God wants you to do. He wants you to see your need for him because there's a rat race out there. There's such a competition to prove yourself, the beauty contests of the world, to make yourself unforgettable, not negligible. And it's always a losing competition no matter what. Where's your heart today? Have you succumbed to the world or has the world been crushing you with its expectations to figure it out? God says, rest in me. The world demands that you prove your worth. Instead, let's embrace Jesus who died on the cross so you wouldn't have to sacrifice your life to the world's demand, which is always saying more and more and more. And Jesus is saying, enough. It'll never satisfy. Rest in me. Find your identity in me. Hand back your gifts that I gave you to me. Hand your own identity to me. I'm telling you, I know you better than you know yourself, Jesus says to us today. He stands here waiting for you to say yes to his way after we say no to the world's way. If you look back at verse 14 to remind us, Mordecai says to Esther, for you to keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. And so I want us to pause and to, to maybe expect that God still comes and God can still use you if you're willing to hear the call. Esther was not perfect. She made all kinds of mistakes. She had all kinds of fears and doubts, likely. But God can still use you in your fear. God can still use you in your doubts and the mistakes that you've made. He can. He used Esther. He can use you. God still uses imperfect people like Esther and Mordecai and you and me because he knows we can be changed by him. So Esther comes to her senses, right? She was willing to give up the throne and her life for the chance that it might save her people. Imperfect Esther, we believe, turned to God, even though he's not mentioned, even though he seems absent, seems silent. She turns to God in fasting and prayer and gets the courage to offer her life. Now, the thing I want you to see, Esther came to her senses. She kind of got cajoled into it as well. She aligned her values around God's values eventually, and yet I want you to see that Jesus, he never hesitated to come. He never hesitated to give up his real throne, his eternal throne, to give up his, his comfort, his riches. He was willing to give it up, and he actually did for a time. He came in the form of a baby, grew up as a man, died on a cross, rose again. He gave up the throne for a season so that you could have his riches. And he didn't hesitate like Esther. He didn't have a, a, a different motive, right? Esther had to be conjoled into it by Mordecai. You're going, to be, you're going to go down too, Mordecai says. Jesus says, I'm willing to go. I want to go. I love them. He left the throne, gave it up for a season to rescue you from literal death, to rescue you from spiritual death that has cursed this whole world. Jesus died for the wrongs we have done and Jesus died for the wrongs done to us. Can you see God working in your failures? He died for all of the brokenness, including the wrongs done to you. And some of us here, we come with so many grievances over sin that's been done against us. And it's like a prison. Jesus died for the wrongs done to you so you could be free. 
even if that person never said they were sorry. You can be free of that bitterness. You can be free of that hopelessness. He died for the wrongs that you have done, but he died for the wrongs done to you. You can be free if you say yes to him. Otherwise, you're going to be on the same race to try to prove that you're right or, or try to get that other person to, to finally you know, own up to everything they did, and they should, but you'll never have peace. Jesus says, I can offer you peace now for the injustice is done against you as well. Only in him, no matter how much beauty product you use or how, much, how powerful you get, it will never match up to the healing that Jesus offers you for the wrongs done against you. And he can use you in your brokenness, in my brokenness. Can you see God working in your failures? And can you see God working in the wrongs done against you? doesn't make the wrongs right. But God says, I'm not absent. I'm present. I've not abandoned you. Can you see him working out good for even the injustices of your life? He may seem absent, but he's not. See, because Jesus is the true and better Esther. I want you to flip to Philippians 2 with me. If you want to join me in the House Bible, it's on page 980. It's going to read this section. This is Paul talking about Christ. Verse 1, Philippians 2, 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in spirit, in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Remember that word. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, there's that word again, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wow. This is a true king, not like King Xerxes. He gave it all up out of love for you, love for this world, his creation. See, Jesus is true and better Esther as well, because while Esther lived in a palace, Jesus lived in the ultimate palace of heaven, and nobody had to conjole him into coming down. He wanted to come. And unlike Esther, he didn't just risk his life, but he actually gave his life. Jesus did not grasp his divine rights. He didn't have to feel pain. He didn't have to get injured. He didn't have to be hurt. He didn't have to be abandoned. He didn't have to be stabbed in the back. He chose it to take on your sin, the wrongs that you've done. He chose it to take on the wrongs done to you so that you could be free. This is true and better Esther. He didn't grasp onto his divine rights. He chose to become one of us. He chose to experience all this. He didn't have to do it. He wanted to. On the cross, he took the blame, and he rose to give you life. So you don't have to follow this false path anymore. The false way that says you're not valuable until you do more, until you prove yourself more, until you acquire these things. You're not valuable anymore because you've lost your beauty, is what the world tells us. And God says, I'm here if you'll listen to my still, small voice. 
You can see me. You can hear me. Maybe you can feel me. I am real. I am in you. Follow me. Do not live this way. Follow me. You don't have to be beautiful or strong or respected. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who know they are weak and nothing without Jesus. For when you lose your life, you will find it. Can you hear him speaking to you today? He wants you to find him again. If you're a follower of Jesus, you never lost him. He'll never forsake you. But sometimes we kind of lose our way, right? And we forget to listen. He is Jesus, a true and better Esther, because he could have held on to his heavenly privilege, but instead gave it up so we could have it. He is the truest humble king. Thirdly, God uses those who have been wronged. Now, I want to make sure before we leave this story that you know this is not some kind of romanticized pretty woman movie, right? Where King Xerxes is like Richard Gere and Esther's Julia Roberts and this is a wonderful love story. No, there's a harem, okay? She had to live in the harem. She had to service the needs of the king as an audition, and then got chosen to be queen. It's a very messed up situation. So prior to becoming queen, she already was an orphan. She was an exile. Then she was forced to live in the king's harem. She was forced to serve his needs. And yet Esther didn't let the brokenness that she experienced be an unhealable scar. She didn't. With God, even though he's not mentioned, her pain became a platform for ministry. It doesn't justify the pain that she experienced. It doesn't justify the wrongs done against her. But with God, he could take a pain and make it a platform to bless others. I don't know what pain you bring here today. And maybe you're stuck thinking this pain, this wrong, it's this wound and the scar, and it is. But with Jesus, he can make that scar something that could be a platform to be a blessing to help others. You can discover a ministry even through the painful parts of your life. God didn't waste anything in Esther's life. And this same God wants you to know he won't waste anything in your life if you will follow him. If you know him, he will never leave you, he'll never forsake you, and he will not waste anything in your life. Even the wrongs done against you, the injustices that some of you have experienced. This same God wants you to know he will not waste it. Just like Joseph, who learned last week, he won't waste it if you give it over to him. He can take your pain and make something good come out of it. For those who put their trust in Christ, nothing gets wasted. There's something in you probably you might think or tempted to think it's a waste. No good came out of this. And I know it wasn't a good thing that happened, but God can even take those worst things and make something good out of it. You don't have to be a prisoner to the injustices done against you. The wrongs we have done, yes, we're forgiven, but the wrongs done to us, Christ died for those too. Christ takes upon himself and gives us his righteousness. He gives us freedom from our sins and the sins done against us. You don't have to be bitter anymore. You don't have to be hopeless anymore. You don't have to be trapped by these wrongs done against you. There's freedom in Christ. When we turn to God, he doesn't waste our failures or our pain. He sent Jesus to make it all matter. You matter. Your pain matters. In Luke 24, if you want to follow me there, this quick story as we 
begin to wrap up. I have one more story after this. But in Luke 24, just want to remind you, Jesus is resurrected. All the disciples are bummed out. That's in the Bible, my translation, because they think it's over, game over. The Messiah died. The king that we all were rooting for is done. Our, our candidate not only lost, he got executed. We're done. So these two disciples are wandering on the road to Emmaus. They're all bummed out. They're depressed. They're like, game over. Maybe they're coming after me next. And Jesus walks up to them in this story, these two depressed disciples, and they're frightened, verse 5 says, faces bowed to the ground. And then Jesus starts talking to them, and he says this in verse 5, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. In verse 8, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And so what happened on verse 13, we see he encounters these two of these depressed disciples who haven't seen Jesus yet. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, this is verse 13, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, for their eyes were kept from recognizing him. As you go through the story, they go on this walk, Jesus says, why are you bummed out? They say, haven't you heard, stranger? Don't you know about it? You know, they killed Jesus. And you know, oh, well, let me tell you a little bit of something. And Jesus walks them through a Bible study. And in this Bible study, Jesus takes the Bible, which is the Hebrew Scriptures, and he starts flipping through it, and he says, look at this. Look at this story. Look at this story. And he keeps pointing to it, keep pointing to it, keep pointing, keeps showing him his story in the Old Testament. And I wonder if he turned to the book of Esther. And I wonder if he pointed to the book and said, you see Esther, how she, she took the rest and left her throne? There's a greater king who left his throne and died on a cross and rose again. Can you see him? And it says later, their eyes were opened. After Jesus pointed story after story after story saying, see, that's about me, that's about me, that's about me, that's about me, that's about me. He kept pointing to himself. Because you see, Jesus humbled himself by leaving the paradise of heaven, coming to earth as a man, and yet he's the most self-assured, humble man you'll ever meet. He kept saying, this whole book is about me. Follow me. Open your eyes. And Jesus didn't want him to miss it. He didn't want him to just think that Jesus was this dead good preacher or a dead good rabbi. He says, no, I am the son of God, rose again from the dead to give you life. Could they see it? Because the Bible doesn't let you get away with either treating Jesus as just another way, another path, another piece of your fulfillment plan. He's saying, I am the center of the universe. All that you can see and not see comes from me. Follow me. Lose your life in me, not Buddha. Lose your life in me, not Islam. Lose your life in me, not naturalism or atheism. Lose your life in me, Jesus says, and you will find life. So what do you think about Jesus? Because deciding to follow Jesus with your whole self means there's no room for other lords. Not just other religions, but lords like money. Lords like trying to be beautiful. Lords like trying to be liked and loved. Those are other lords in our life as well. There's no room. He's looking inside you, not the externals, but deep inside you and wants you to know, will you say yes to him in the fullness of your life? Anything you see, you can point to it if Jesus was next to point to that tree. He says, I made that. You can look at the stars at night. Jesus says, I made that too. And you can look in the mirror. He says, and I made you as well. Will you align yourself fully to me? 
because he knows he alone is worthy of worship. And what you do, what you decide to do with the person of Jesus is the most important thing you can do in your entire life. And as you walk out of this room, you get to decide anew, will you follow Jesus with your whole self? Or are you going to waste your time in a beauty pageant, your own modern-day beauty pageant, trying to not feel negligible? You get to choose today. Just like Jesus did 2,000 years ago, he wants to walk with his followers and show them how he is in every chapter of the Bible and letting you know, friends, he's in your story too. He's not abandoned you. He may seem silent. He may be hard to hear, hard to see, but he's not abandoned you. And he wants you to live fully for him. It's the only true life worth living for. I'm going to close by mentioning a story of Martin Luther King. His famous mountaintop speech, really a sermon, he mentioned a story he was referring back about 10 years earlier where there, he was a, another assassination attempt, actually by a black woman who was mentally deranged at a book signing, stabbed him. And he almost died. He was rushed to the hospital, and while in the emergency room, they saved him. But Dr. King says, if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in. This is while he was recovering. He says, I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. It simply said, Dear Dr. King, I'm a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. While it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering, and I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. And I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And then Dr. King goes on, and he says, I want to say tonight that I, too, am happy that I didn't sneeze, because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters, standing up for the best in the American dream. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963 when the black people of Birmingham, Alabama aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. I'm so happy I didn't sneeze. We've got difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind like anybody. I would like to live a long life but I just want to do God's will. He's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked it over. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people, we will get to the promised land. And as if he was prophesying his own death, Dr. King was killed the very next day. But he had peace. He knew who he was. He knew who he was living for and he was ready at any moment, for his life to be a blessing to others. He lived ready for the end. I know a couple weeks ago, we all were shocked to hear the news of Kobe, Gianna Bryant, the seven others who tragically died. It was right during this service that I found out. It captured the intention of the world. I wonder, what is it about losing someone in their prime that kind of wakes us up, doesn't it? This kind of shocks you. When you lose someone young in their their best moment, these tragic losses seem to almost snap us out of this slumber. It kind of makes us realize, wow, life is short. When someone dies, we're confronted by our own mortality, and we ask ourselves, do I have my own priorities straight? Death makes us face life. What's my purpose on this earth? What should I use my life for, to please myself or to please God? So I want to leave you with this verse 14 from Esther chapter 4, for such a time as this. 
And would you bow with me in prayer as we consider that? Lord, we don't have to be an Esther or Martin Luther King to have this moment where we realize that our life doesn't belong to us. For you, God, you own everything. And I must lose my life to find it. And so, Lord, we want to follow you, Jesus. You, Jesus, who did not hold on to his life. You did not grasp onto it, but you gave it up. And Lord, would you help us to realize that we were put on this planet, in this place, for such a time as this. For such a time as this where in Iran there's this amazing revival going on and many Muslims are coming to faith in Christ. And for such a time as this, we're alive to see this happen. And Lord, that young people in our community, they're stressed and anxious as ever. And God in church is the last place that the culture is encouraging them to go for help. And so, Lord, for such a time as this, may we respond. And, Lord, for the many who are grieving tragic losses in this very room, Lord, that need the comfort of the community of faith to sit and weep with them for such a time as this, would you help us to weep with those who weep? And, Lord, for the hundreds of kids in our foster care system right here in our neighborhood, in our community, who do not have more than a trash bag to carry their belongings, Lord, for such a time as this, may we respond. Lord, will we pray that these next years of our life would be the best years because we cease to follow the ways of the world and we're following you, Jesus, who did not grasp his rights but gave himself up. Lord, forgive us. May we choose you today. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.